All right, let's pray together. Father, make it to be what we just sang, that our soul would be satisfied to know that your love never fails. And Father, that your love towards us would be a great satisfaction of our souls. Father, as we look at these words that you've given us in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, we know that we are looking at very sensitive and tender things. And so we pray for your grace and your mercy, that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in my 20s and still single, I was living in Dallas, Texas, and I used to go to a church that had a whole lot of other single people in it. And our pastor was a guy by the name of Todd Wagner. And I will never forget something that he told us one evening during a worship service about marriage. Most of us in the room wanted to be married. We wanted to um, do it right when we got married. But Todd knew that so many of us had naive expectations about what marriage would be like. He knew that the men and women were often um, just sort of totally in, in totally different places when it comes to expectations for marriage. And I can't even remember the biblical text that he was preaching. That part has escaped me. All I remember is the exhortation that he gave us that night. And he looked at us and he said to us, he said, guys, you need to know that marriage is not going to be a 24-hour-a-day sexual bonanza. Gals, you need to know that marriage is not going to be a 24-hour-a-day meaningful conversation. And we were all sitting there sort of like, what? You know, we, everybody was just stunned because so many of us have these different expectations that we bring to marriage, especially when it comes to the marital bond. Now, I don't want anybody to raise their hands in here, but I wonder how many of you who are married have discovered that what you thought married life would be is actually quite different than what it turned out to be. Now, it's no secret that men and women have different expectations when it comes to marriage, and sometimes those differences come out before the wedding day, especially if you have good premarital counseling, but sometimes they don't come out. And you get into marriage and you're like, surprise, this is not what I thought. I'm married to a human who's different than me. And so sometimes you get in there and it's sort of jarring. But even if you do know the differences beforehand, it's one thing to know about them and it's another thing to live them. And those differences aren't just going to be about the marital act, which is the subject of, of this text, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7. You're going to have differences that have to do with money, how to raise kids, um, how to relate to cantankerous in-laws that are difficult, perhaps. Who gets to hold the remote control? Who does what job around the house? And countless other items of both mundane and very serious interest. And each one of those differences have a potential to produce conflicts. 
conflicts that can have a cumulative effect on the relationship. The kind of conflicts that can cause strain in a relationship. And you find out that even though none of those things that I just listed have anything to do with the sexual bond, in reality, all those things have to do with the sexual bond because they all have to do with the relationship. Because sex is but one part of a comprehensive union with your spouse. It's not all of your union, but it is a part of the union. You, if you are married, you are in a comprehensive bodily, emotionally, spiritual relationship with your spouse. A relationship that has many moving parts. And when one of those parts breaks down, it affects all the other parts. And so it turns out that sex within marriage is rigged. And get this, God is the one who rigged it. He rigged it so that you have to be godly in order for it to be fulfilling or for it to even exist. Meaning that if you are selfish and boorish and unkind and generally bad relationally, then you can count on having a terrible intimate life together with your spouse. But if you are unselfish, thoughtful, kind, and a life-giving friend to your spouse, the Bible says that you can have your fountain to be blessed, Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18. But this is where the trouble comes in for so many of us. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Bad marriages happen by default. Good marriages happen on purpose. We are all sinners, and none of us is going to sit back passively and watch a good marriage just sort of emerge out of the ether. Okay, that's not how it works. This is something that we're all going to have to work at and to work at for as long as we both shall live. And that's why we need a text like 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 1 through 7. So if you're not there yet, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In this text... Paul is tackling precisely the same kinds of sexual problems that married couples have always faced. Chapter 7 appears at the end of a larger section dealing with sexual holiness. And you'll remember chapters 5 and 6 were dealing negatively with sexual holiness in terms of sexual immorality. Now chapter 7 is dealing with it positively as Paul is explaining the norms of marriage. And these first seven verses of chapter 7 are dealing specifically with threats to the sexual bond between the husband and wife. In the ESV, if you look at verse 3, it refers to this bond as conjugal rights. So that's one way that we can refer to this, this bond. We will observe three items that Paul communicates about this conjugal relationship between a husband and a wife. And so here's the three uh, points for my sermon. Paul's going to talk about the disruption of conjugal union in verses 1 and 2. He'll talk about the duty of conjugal union in verses 3 and 4. And then he's going to talk about the exception to conjugal union in verses 5 through 7. So the disruption of conjugal union, the duty of conjugal union, and the exception to conjugal union. But the first thing is the disruption of conjugal union. And that's in verses 1 and 2. Everybody look at verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. 
Now, notice that Paul refers to the matters about which you wrote. This refers to a letter that the Corinthians had previously written to Paul and which he had received. So 1 Corinthians, this book that we've been studying here for these months, this book, therefore, is in large part a response to the letter that the Corinthians had written to him. And beginning in chapter 7, he begins his responses explicitly to the things that they had raised in, his, in their letter to him. And one of the items that they raised in their previous letter to Paul is what you see in the quotation marks. That part that says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, the important thing to keep in mind as you read that quotation is that those words aren't Paul's words, but they're the Corinthians' words. And Paul has a problem with what they are saying, and he's going to confront it. That this is their perspective, and Paul says it needs some correction. If you're reading a more literal translation like the New American Standard Bible, the quotation reads something like this. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Anybody have that in their translation? It's good for a man not to touch a woman. And when I was in college, me and some other young single guys, we, we memorized the, the literal version as an exhortation for sexual purity to, to singles. You shouldn't even touch a girl, is what it said. That may be wise advice, but that's not what Paul means by touch here. The word translated here as touch often is a euphemism for sexual contact. In fact, it was the word in the Old Testament that was used, uh, that Boaz used when he told Ruth to go out in the field and he instructed the men not to touch her. It wasn't that they weren't just supposed to brush up against her, it was what they weren't supposed to sexually molest her. And so that's how Paul's using the term here. He's talking about sexual contact. And he's saying, they were saying in the church, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And it is good for a man not to have sexual relationship with a woman who is not his wife. But the problem in Corinth is that some married couples were applying this principle to marriage. Claiming that it was good for husbands not even to have conjugal relations with their own wives. In other words, they had made a virtue out of abstinence within marriage. You see what the problem is here. And this was causing a disruption in the conjugal bond between some of the husbands and wives, apparently. Now, why would they do such a thing? One commentator observes that in the ancient Mediterranean culture, there were many groups that regarded sexual abstinence as a means to personal wholeness and religious power. So not even Christian or Jewish groups, just certain groups thought that. It was just sort of in the air with some groups, not all groups. Um, it may have been the case that some of the Corinthians thought of themselves as so spiritual that they were trying to behave in the present as married couples as if they were already in heaven because they knew probably what Jesus had said, that people neither marry nor are given in marriage in heaven, but they're like the angels. Luke chapter 20. Whatever the reason was, we can't be totally sure why people were saying this, that it's good for husband not to have sexual relations with his wife whatever the reason was they had made a virtue out of abstaining from sex within marriage and Paul has a problem with this now before we get all judgy towards the Corinthians and that they are saying this and abstaining within marriage I think it's good for us to, to just sort of pause here and take account 
of our own marriages. Just, again, no show of hands here. But have any of you ever neglected marital intimacy for bad reasons? We are not so different from the Corinthians, are we? Do we not have our own foxes in the vineyard? As Song of Solomon puts it. Do we not have our own reasons that we allow marital intimacy to be ruined? And so when couples begin to struggle with intimacy, it is hardly ever because of a physical problem. It's typically because of a relational problem. Something has gone wrong that has caused one or both spouses to grow cold. And nobody plans on this when you first get married. It usually just happens very gradually until one day you wake up and wonder what happened why is there so much indifference about our marital bond well look what paul says next in verse two paul says but because of the temptation to sexual immorality each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband now the key phrase here is at the beginning of the verse he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality. And if we were going to render this very, very literally, it would be something like this. Because of the immoralities. Because of the immoralities. It's not just any old temptation to immorality that Paul is referring to. He's likely, I think, referring to the immoralities that he just mentioned at the end of chapter 6. Now, it's been months since uh, a month or so since we studied chapter 6 in here. But let's remember that chapter 7 comes right after chapter 6. And just as the Corinthians finished reading about what he said about those men visiting prostitutes in chapter 6, he then turns to the Corinthians and says, Because of the immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Paul says that each man and, and, and wife must do this. And um, when he says that they're to have each other, he means that they are to have one another sexually. So the point here is, is pretty clear. Paul's saying to them, if you want to avoid temptation, you must be in regular union with your spouse. He's saying the same thing to us. And at this point, Paul is not addressing why a couple might neglect their intimate life together. All he is addressing is what happens if they do. They open their marriage up to temptation. And the question then becomes, why does temptation enter the picture when there is no ongoing sexual bond in the marriage? It's because sex is not a solitary, discrete item in your marriage. It is a part, as we said, it's a part of the comprehensive spiritual union that you have with your spouse. If this part of your relationship is struggling, it's not the only thing that's struggling. There is physical intimacy and there is emotional intimacy. And when one of those is suffering, you can pretty much count on the fact that the other one is too. And the longer a spouse can't find emotional and physical intimacy within marriage, the more likely they will be tempted with opportunities to find it outside the marriage. Now, do not misunderstand what I'm saying here. The lack of intimacy within a marriage is not a justification for adultery or any kind of an excuse for unfaithfulness. Anybody who goes off and is unfaithful to their marriage vows is going to have to bear 
the responsibility for that. And you can't cite a stale marriage as an excuse. That's not going to be accepted at the judgment. It's not going to be accepted before the Lord. Nevertheless, even though it's not an excuse for it, it, Paul is saying a stale marriage with no emotional or physical intimacy can open your marriage up to temptation from the outside. And the longer the alienation exists, the more prone to temptation spouses become. And so this is really clearly why Paul insists each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. You know, the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15 says... Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards. The idea here is of the vineyard representing the relationship between the, the bridegroom and the bride. And it includes, I think, the sexual relationship between the two of them. And there are foxes that are threatening to ruin the whole thing. Foxes are small and quiet. They don't present an imposing figure. Yet if you let them go long enough, they can destroy an entire vineyard. Which means they can destroy the relationship. They can destroy the intimacy that's supposed to be normal and regular within a marriage. So here's the question that, you need, that married couples need to ask themselves. Are you aware of the foxes that are threatening to ruin your vineyard? Are you vigilant to guard your vineyard from bitterness, from anger, from malice, from selfishness, and all the other little things that add up in the end to be a big thing and that can ruin your intimate life together? These are the things that kill emotional intimacy, and for that reason, they kill physical intimacy within marriage. If you're regularly just going to bed mad, leaving stuff unresolved, if every time your spouse wants to talk through an issue with you, you give them the stiff arm, if every time your spouse wants to share with you something that's bothering them and you won't listen to them, that does not add up to marital intimacy over time. It adds up to alienation over time. If you're just coasting along, not paying attention to yourself or to your marriage, you can be sure that the foxes will overrun you. So there are, are there unspoken issues between you and your spouse that you've not learned to deal with? Maybe you've learned to, to live with disappointment. Maybe that's where you are in your marriage. And so you don't even have the expectation anymore of a happy and meaningful relationship with your spouse. If that's where you are, something's got to change. Do you know what it is that functions as a barrier between you and your spouse? You must not respond to the issues that divide you with indifference. You have to engage with your spouse. So wives, it's your duty and privilege to have and to hold your husband. Husbands, it's your duty and privilege to have and to hold your wife. To leave off of that privilege is to forsake your wedding vows and to allow temptation a foothold. And so we, we just can't do that. We must not do that. And so that's why Paul warns here in these first two verses against the disruption of your conjugal 
union. And it's also why, secondly, he exhorts them and us about the duty of your conjugal union. So everybody look at the duty of conjugal union in verses 3 and 4. Paul says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. I just read the ESV translation, which is fine and, and good so far as it goes. A more literal rendering would go like this, and I think this is important because it brings out another element. It says, let the husband give what is owed to his wife, and likewise, let the wife give what is owed to her husband. So what I don't want you to miss here is that Paul is using the language of duty and of obligation. Nobody uses this text at weddings. We all like the Ephesians 5. Uh, the duty and obligation part is not what people typically want to talk about at, on the wedding day. But this actually becomes very important for the marriage, doesn't it? So he's using the language of duty and obligation. And in doing so, he's saying that sex within marriage isn't an optional thing. It is something that you are obliged to do within marriage. It is what... Uh, the one flesh union is, is all about. And so Paul invokes this term when he says what is owed. He's, invo he's invoking a term that's used elsewhere to, to refer to financial debt. But he's now applying it to what husbands and wives owe one another in the bedroom. Each spouse has a debt to pay, as it were, and each spouse is expecting to render what they owe. And so that raises two very practical questions. They're the two questions that anybody would have when somebody says, you owe me something. Two questions that you have is, what do I owe you and how much? So what are the answers to those questions? At the very least, I think we know what the what you owe, the answer to the what do I owe you question is here. At the very least, a husband owes sexual intimacy to his wife, and a wife owes the same to her husband. That's clearly what Paul is, is saying here. That much about the physical duty is clear. But I want to ask a question and, and get you to think about this with me for a second. Is it possible that there is more that is owed here? I want to suggest that there, there is. I want to suggest that it's not merely the physical act that you owe your spouse. It's also all the emotional and relational intimacy that makes the act delightful that you owe to your spouse. Several years ago, there was this uh, kind of funny meme that was going around the internet. It was this, this picture. It went viral, and it was this photo, and it was, it was some kind of a control box. <laughs> Anybody see this? It was like a control box, like a control panel. You don't know what it controlled, but um, the, the bottom half of the box was labeled the woman, and it had about 40 different knobs and switches with an assortment of flashing lights that correspond to the knobs and switches. None of them are labeled. They're just sort of haphazardly covering the bottom half of this control box. And just looking at the picture, it looks like you have to have a degree in rocket science to figure out how to get this thing to work. And there's this real question about how even to get the thing turned on. But the portion of the control box labeled the woman, it just is really complicated. And uh, the top half of the box was labeled the man, 
and on the top half of the box, there was this one lonely switch, and it just said on and off. And it was labeled very clearly. Uh, the switch is up, light comes on, it's on, flip switch is down, the light goes off, the man is off. Operating the man was really not complicated. And so uh, I'm using this analogy here for a reason, okay? Let me get really practical here. And husbands, I want to address you very specifically because there are certain things that I think it's important for us to think about, especially in a, a complementarian environment. I want to address you specifically for a couple reasons. I don't think there's really any mystery about how to operate the top half of the box. Perhaps we need less exhortation about that than we do the other. And the second reason I want to address you is that I know for a fact that many of you are looking at the bottom half of the box. Things are dysfunctional relationally, emotionally, and otherwise. And you're looking at the bottom half of the box with a blank look on your face, wondering how you're going to get the light turned on. And some men, unfortunately, instead of trying to figure out how it works, you do like you do with your electronics. You pick it up, you push all the buttons indiscriminately, and it doesn't work. You start shaking it and banging on it, and that's not going to fix things, okay? You're not working on things according to how they're designed. Okay, so here's the deal, husbands. You need to figure out how to work the machine according to its design. You don't just start shaking it all over tarnation until it accidentally starts working again. Let me put a fine point on this. Husbands, you are not rendering what you owe to your wife if you're depriving her of all the emotional and relational intimacy that she requires for the act to be special and meaningful to her. That's what I'm trying to say. This is going to require communication on your part. It's going to require figuring out how your wife communicates and receives affirmation and love. You're going to have to learn that she's not the female version of you. You may have to read some books. Learn about the five love languages. I don't know. Take a marriage seminar. However you do this. You need to understand that you need to make a study of your spouse and learn how to serve her in every way, in a way that serves every aspect of your comprehensive union. You need to render what is owed to your wife, husbands. Wives, you need to render what is owed to your husbands. And both of you need to figure out how to render this duty so that it's not a chore, but a joy. Now, we live in a fallen world, and none of us is perfect. And it's not always going to be everything you want it to be. But you need to keep working at it and never give up. And that means attending regularly, not only to your physical needs, but also to the emotional and relational needs of your spouse. Look at verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body. But the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, some have mistakenly interpreted this verse as a prescription for egalitarian gender roles within marriage. This is not a sermon about that, but I think that that's not at all what Paul has in mind here. Rather, he's concerned narrowly with the obligation that a husband and a wife have to one another in terms of physical intimacy. Uh, we know this not only because of Paul's teaching elsewhere about gender roles, uh, Ephesians 5, 
uh, for instance, but also because Paul's words here focus on the use of each spouse's body, it says in the conjugal act. Verse 4 says that husbands and wives must relinquish to one another the right of control over their own bodies. It's not something that you seize from the other. It's something that's voluntarily given to the other. Now, having said that, let me correct one other possible misunderstanding of this text that I think is important. Because I think this language of authority sometimes makes people a little uncomfortable. And it does so for, for different reasons. For some people, it sounds kind of oppressive. And to some who have, uh, and sometimes it, 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 to some people maybe who've experienced abuse, it may even sound kind of scary. As if one spouse has a right to force or coerce another spouse to do something against their will. So let's be clear that this text is not authorizing anyone to force or coerce any spouse into doing anything. If that's the case, then what is this text saying? The language of authority is here, not so that you will demand what you think is owed to you, but so that you will render freely what you owe to your spouse. In other words, this text does not teach you to go to your spouse and say, you owe me. It's teaching you to say, I owe you. That's what it's trying to say. It's about a husband and a wife giving themselves freely to one another. It is, it is about a husband and a wife giving themselves fully over to one another. It is not about insisting on one's own autonomy and authority, but about being a servant to one's spouse. So, with limited exceptions, this means that spouses are always to make themselves available to one another. They are not supposed to put their own needs first. It is true that there are times when one or both spouses may not feel like coming together. But that's not the point of this text. The point is for spouses to serve one another in love, in the marital bond. Now, earlier I said that whenever you owe someone something, you have two questions. How much, what do I owe? How much do I owe? So we didn't answer the second question, how much? When you've voluntarily given yourself over to your spouse in marriage, I think you answer the how much question. And you answer the question not by your own needs, but by your spouse's needs. The New Living Translation actually paraphrases 1 Corinthians 7, 3 this way. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. And I think that's capturing the spirit of this. So Paul talks in verses 1 through 2 about the disruption of conjugal union. Verses 3 and 4, he addresses in no uncertain terms the duty of, the con of conjugal union. Finally, in verses 5 through 7, he's, he's going to talk about the exception to conjugal union. Everybody look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, many translations have the term deprive here, um, and that's, that's a, a, good, a good, a fine rendering. But Paul is actually employing a term here that invokes the idea of stealing or defrauding. You remember, we talked about the fact that each spouse has a conjugal debt to pay, 
according to verse 3. And so any husband or wife that fails to render the debt steals from their spouse. This is the imagery that Paul is using here. We might translate it as stop stealing from one another or stop cheating one another out of what is owed to them. So I mean, there's no other way to say this. Paul expects regular conjugal union to be the norm within marriage. How regular is regular? The Bible doesn't tell you some kind of number or something. It simply tells us that the frequency should not be self-determined. You should determine the frequency by understanding and serving the needs of your spouse. Having said that, Paul does allow for an exception in verse 5. Right? Verse 5 assumes what the norm is, right? Regular conjugal union. But it also says that there's an exception to this. And so he highlights at least two conditions that married couples um, may, for, for two conditions that married couples might abstain for a period of time. Go on a kind of a fast, as it were, and refrain from sexual relations for the purposes of prayer. Condition number one is this. It's that both partners must be in agreement about the fast, about the abstinence. He says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement. So they have to be in harmony on this, in agreement on this. Um, neither spouse, therefore, has the authority to, to declare a, universal, a, a unilateral fast at this point. If either of the partners has a qualm about a period of abstention, then you, you should back away from it. If there is disagreement, regular conjugal re relations should go on as usual. If there is agreement, if there's agreement, then a second condition comes into play. It can only be for a limited period of time. Even by agreement, spouses are not allowed to observe a permanent or indefinite period of time of abstention. Assuming everybody's healthy and everybody's well, that's the assumption here, right? Assuming everybody's healthy and well, and there's not some other mitigating factor there, even by agreement, it can only be for a limited period of time. The longer the abstention goes, the more vulnerable spouses become to temptation. And so Paul warns, warns come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul makes it clear that abstaining from sex within marriage is not a spiritually healthy thing to do. It's an exceptional thing only to be entered into by agreement and for a very limited period of time. Reg regular conjugal relations are to be the norm. Now look what Paul says in verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. Which means I'm saying this to you by way of concession, not by way of command. And the this refers back to verse 5, I believe. Paul will allow short periods of abstention under certain strict conditions. And that concession, that concession is helpful because there are times when spouses can serve one another by abstaining. A husband, for instance, would do well to agree with his wife to abstain for a period of time, perhaps, after childbirth. Or perhaps during certain times of the month. A husband's tender concern for his wife will include loving her enough to know what situations might make relations physically or emotionally uncomfortable for her. His tender concern would also include patience and care when dealing with the fallout, perhaps, of past abuse, past abuse 
which sadly is becoming uh, all the more prevalent, it, it seems, and affecting marriages. So there needs to be patience and care in those situations. There is a time for everything, and sometimes there's a time for spouses to abstain. And when those times come, agree together to do it for the purpose of prayer. But nevertheless, even though Paul makes a concession for abstention, couples should take advantage of that concession with caution. Paul says, I say this by way of concession, not of command, which means there's no biblical obligation for this. Nobody has to do this. There is no biblical obligations for couples to abstain, but there is a very clear obligation for them to come together regularly. That's the accent in this text. Couples must come together again quickly so as not to give Satan a foothold of temptation. And that threat is very real. Satan wants to destroy you and your marriage, and he will do it any way he can. Look at verse 7. Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Here, Paul is simply referring to the fact that he himself is unmarried. He likes the life of ministry that the Lord has called him to. He wishes that others could, others could have a life like his. But Paul also knows that both the married state and the unmarried state are a gift from the Lord. I think he knows the kinds of things that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19 and, and verse 11. Each person, married or unmarried, serves the Lord by being faithful to the responsibilities of the gift that they have, be, they have received, whether you're married or unmarried. And there are responsibilities that go with being unmarried and responsibilities that go with being married. For Paul, being unmarried, that responsibility, his responsibilities included celibacy. For married couples, that responsibility of your marriage vows includes regular conjugal union. So Paul's talked about the disruption of conjugal union, the duty of conjugal union, and the exception to conjugal union. And, and as we wind up here, I just want to finish with four concluding applications for you to think about. You know, I used to say that sexual intimacy in marriage is like a thermometer, not like a thermostat. It reflects the temperature, but it doesn't set the temperature. I don't think that's right. I don't believe that anymore. A couple's physical intimacy is actually more like the AC control panel in my house, which is both a thermostat and a thermometer, all in one. It tells us the temperature, and it also sets the temperature. And we have to use both functions on our little air conditioner controller if we want things to feel right in our, our home. I think sexual intimacy in marriage works like that. It is true that a lack of physical intimacy is a sign that other things are wrong. It's true. It's a thermometer in that, in that sense. But leaving that union aside can only make things worse. And oftentimes, maintaining the intimate relationship can elevate the relational and emotional bond that both spouses need. So don't neglect physical intimacy until you get all your other issues worked out. It has to be ongoing as you are working things out. Lo lovingly serve one another 
as you learn and grow in the relational and emotional components of your union. Second thing, if you're unhappy with the state of physical intimacy in your marriage, don't beat your spouse over the head with these verses. Don't get me wrong. There's going to be times in your marriage when you need to talk about these verses openly with, with one another. And other passages of scripture that may be confrontational, okay? So there will be times to talk together about the Lord's will for your marriage as revealed in texts like 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 7. What I'm trying to say is, is that if there are other issues hindering intimacy in your marriage, you really need to focus on getting to the bottom of those issues. And if you use these verses in order to avoid having to deal with those issues, then you are serving your own needs and not the needs of your spouse. If the home fires aren't burning frequently or fervently enough for you, don't use these verses to browbeat your spouse. Find out what the issue is. This is a, this is a responsibility for husbands and wives with, within marriage. You both, you're going to have to have mutual communication here. I do have husbands in mind here, though, in particular at this point, because you still are the head of your home. And God has placed you there as the leader within your marriage, and that means it's your responsibility to get to the bottom of things when there's a problem. Sometimes this may feel like an onerous responsibility, especially when you feel like you're not the one who's in the wrong. You're still responsible for making sure that you're leading out in reconciliation, leading out in listening, and leading out and figuring out what's going wrong here. It's your responsibility. And if there's a chill in the bedroom, the first question you have to answer is not, how can I get her to do what I want? Your first question is, is why is this happening in the first place? That's your first question. You have to become a student of your wife's heart. Wives, you need to become a student of your husband's heart. Husbands, you have to be self-aware enough to know that oftentimes she is cold towards you for things that you need to change. When there are relational problems in a marriage, it is very rare that all the fault goes to one side. I know that. We all know that. Usually both sides have, have played a part in the dysfunction. Even so, men, I want to exhort you to know that you, first of all, need to figure out what your role is in the problem. And get to the bottom of it. It's your job to begin the reconciliation by confessing and repenting of your part. And the tenderness and warmth that you desire, you have to lead out in that. You don't wait for her. You lead and you pray for the Lord to bring her along as you lead. Now, the duty that we have as spouses is to give ourselves freely to one another. But you must do everything you can to make that giving a joy and not a chore. Ongoing and regular conjugal union is a duty in marriage, but it shouldn't feel like one. It should be a delight. And you should make it your aim to always make it a delight and do all that it takes to make it that way. Third thing I want to say. If you're listening to this sermon and it's becoming clear to you that you've dropped the ball in some or all of these things, let me say a word of encouragement to you. Join the club. <laughs> there ain't none of us in here that's batting a thousand on righteousness in our marriages. Okay? 
And every married one of us in here has a spouse who knows that we're not batting a thousand. Everybody knows that. So let's keep it real and not pretend that anyone has their act completely together because we don't. Also, even though that's true, let's take this opportunity afforded to us by a text like this to open up some lines of communication that need to happen in, in marriages in this room. If you're aware of ways that you've been blowing it in your marriage, then you need to set aside some time to talk to your spouse and ask for forgiveness. I mean, what I'm hoping is, is that if, you know, if you've got kids, get the kids down. At some point tonight, y'all just spend some time talking to each other about some things tonight. And husbands, listen. Listen. And try to understand. And wives, listen. And try to understand. And these are tender things, and people will tend to get angry and lash out. Don't do that, okay? Just Put all of that aside and just listen to each other and communicate. Ask for forgiveness. Receive forgiveness. Fourth thing I want to say is this. What's our motive here for pursuing good marriages? Our motive ultimately is shaped by what scripture says about marriage. Uh, marriage is not does not exist for the sake of itself. Marriage exists for the sake of something else. We believe that God gave us the gift of marriage as a picture of Christ's love for his church. And when there's rancor and dysfunction within marriage, we are presenting a false view of Christ's love for his church. Our marriages are supposed to be a display of the glory of the gospel. These things matter to us because we care ultimately about the gospel. We love one another for the sake of the gospel, right? That's our ultimate motive here. And I just want anybody who's here in the room, you've been listening to us talk about marriage and, and all of this. You need to know our, our, our deepest concern is about the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And if, if you're here and you're listening to this and you're thinking of ways that you've fallen short of scripture... The Bible says that all of us have fallen short of Scripture. None of us are achieving the glory of God in our lives. All of us are sinners. We're all falling flat on our face. And we can't fix the alienation that comes, that comes to us between us and God. We can't fix that ourselves. Only God can fix it. And the way he fixed it was by sending his own son to die for our sins so that we don't have to receive the punishment for our sins but that he put the punishment of our sins on his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Three days later, he raised him from the dead, and he is alive now, seated at the right hand of God, and is able to offer us eternal life and hope because of that. We're only able to have forgiveness of sins and to have cleansing from sins because of what Jesus has done for us. And if you haven't heard that message and you haven't believed that message, we're inviting you to believe that message right now. Because that message is not for perfect people, people, it's for sinful people. Which means it's for all of us. Let me pray for you. Father, I do pray that you would forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we're praying about the cleansing part right now. 
the part where we need to actually get some things out of our lives and out of our marriages. Father, I pray for husbands and wives in this room that you would grant them the grace to reconcile over differences. To help them to look at one another, to confess their sin, and to really repent of their sin. And to turn towards one another and towards you. And I pray that where marital intimacy has been on the rocks or perhaps even completely destroyed in this room, I pray that you would restore it. And I pray that it would be a little mini revival in these marriages. That they would be transformed and changed. So Father, that's going to require humility and openness and maybe doing things and talking about things that people haven't talked about and done previously. So we ask for your grace to enable us to do that. Help us to be your people. Help us to look like true sons and daughters of God in our marriages. Help us to be a blessing to our children. Help our homes to be a blessing to our neighbors and our community. Help them to be a model. So, Lord, lead us not in temptation. Help us. Help us. Help us. I pray in all these ways. In Jesus' name, amen.